Welcome to thine podcast, fair warriors of midnight, and we beseech ye to take comfort, for we hath offered ye a fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I am Hunter of the Cateses. And I'm Chris Gallagher. On today's show, we're reviewing the greatest Sundance film to ever star a psychopathic goat, The Witch. Then in special features, we'll get a little grisly with the topic, Moments That Horrify, in which we discuss the film moments that have left permanent scars on our cinematic psyches. And finally, we'll wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... We'd like to apologize to all of you Adam Chitwood of Collider.com fans. He was originally scheduled to be on this episode, but unfortunately was not able to make it. He, Chris, and I were on an email chain, and it was very bizarre... He started quoting the Bible in Latin, quoting scripture in Latin, Mm -hmm. so I I think he might have gotten a demon. Yeah, or at the very least, he was tormented by Indian magic. So, in either event, um, I I mean, I I haven't seen that before, so I think we we think he caught a demon, so hopefully he'll, you know, get some rest and get that taken care of. But let this be a lesson to all of you folks is get vaccinated against demons, because most (laughs) healthcare plans don't cover Mm -hmm. uh, demonic possession or exorcism. So, just plan ahead, go to Walgreens. Get your demon shot and don't be like Adam is the lesson here. I'm sorry, I'll get off my soapbox. It's just this is something very near and dear to my heart. The more you know. Yeah, exactly. The more you know. Okay. Well, Hunter, it looks like we have a little uh, a little chat to do. Um, as, as I guess our Midnight Warriors know, last week was the Oscars. And, you know, all those great winners we had. Here's the problem. We're recording just hours before the Oscars show. So it's again time for our now annual pre-Oscars post-show. Yes, using our powers of prognostication, not only are we going to predict the winners, but we will also predict how the show went down. Yeah. And it's in We Are Scarily Accurate. So, uh, Hunter, you want to kick this one off? Absolutely. So, the Best Supporting Actress Award went to Alicia Vikander for The Danish Girl. However, this was very surprising to me, Chris. She was actually forced to return her Best Supporting Actress Oscar when it was revealed she was a robot. Yeah. No, I. uh, that was... I mean, it's not totally surprising because she was very convincing in Ex Machina. And if you think back on it, no human is that good as a robot other than Arnold Schwarzenegger. No, absolutely. And so since and since she played a robot in that, um, it kind of takes away from the impact of Ex Machina. But at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, maybe this is just next year they need to include a category for Best Supporting Robot. I agree. Yeah. 100%. We'll start that petition. Okay, so our next category here is Best Supporting Actor. And I don't think this is any surprise to anyone. It went to Tom Hardy for The Revenant. Um, it was a surprisingly eloquent speech. Uh, he thanked his dialogue coach, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yeah, I was very surprised to see that that was the case. Yeah, but, uh, you know, Stone Cold, you did a great job. Absolutely. And then this was also very interesting. Tom Hardy finished his speech by addressing the Academy of President, whose name is Cheryl Boone Isaacs. And he said, You think this gives you power over me? You know, I, I think I went to the bathroom when that happened. I missed that. That was, yeah, I mean, it was very strange. Mm-hmm. But that, that clip that we just played. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it clearly happened. Yeah, clearly happened uh, on the record here. Uh, okay, now then we've got uh, Best Original Score next, which uh, went to John Williams, which isn't really a surprise. I mean, he's won so many. I think he's got a Baker's Dozen now, Hunter. A Baker's Dozen times a thousand, I think. I mean, I think this is 12,000th Oscar that, That's win. right. He's got a lot of those technical awards, too, that we don't actually see on the uh, on the Oscar night. Uh, but, you know, being someone who's accepted so many awards, you would think that he would have it down to a science. But he actually went a little long. And the or- orchestra started to play him off, but he just, you know, pulled that baton out of his uh, breast pocket and halted them. It was pretty amazing. Yeah, it was a beautiful moment. And uh, you could say that he almost used the force of his baton, <laughs> mm-hmm. which if anyone could do that, it would be him. You, you, you could say that. It was a Harry Potter moment, actually. 
Um, well, Best Actress, this was kind of a gimme. I think this, this was one of the ones that everyone truly knew who would win uh, all along, and it turned out she did. It was Brie Larson for Room. It turns out Brie Larson, actually Eddie Redmayne. Really? So did did he indeed win the Oscar, or he, did they he just forfeit? He indeed won the Oscar. It's I think it's now in probate right now. They're trying to decide if he gets to keep it. All right. Well, only fair. So um, so I guess the best actress this year is the best actor. So then the actual best actor, this was another gimme, was Leonardo DiCaprio for The Revenant. Chris and I called it several weeks ago. I think the entire world did. What we didn't call is that Leonardo DiCaprio would pay homage to his hero, Marlon Brando. For those of you abreast of Oscar history back in the early 70s, forfeited his Academy Award for The Godfather and had accepted by an American Indian woman in protest of American Indians' portrayal in films. Leonardo DiCaprio, very similarly, uh, to protest the use of fossil fuels, sent out a manatee. I thought that was, I've never seen that before. Yeah, no, uh, at first I thought it was Andy Serkis in a, in a suit, but no, it was an actual manatee. Yeah, absolutely. They, they carted out this giant tub with a manatee in it. Mm-hmm. Or actually, no, yeah, it was a tub, and they just kept on throwing water onto the manatee mm-hmm. to make sure that its skin was properly Yeah, unified. and, you know, we mentioned how eloquent Tom Hardy's speech was, was which was a little bit of a surprise. I would say uh, manatee had the best speech of the night. No, I mean, and here's the thing is they didn't even bother playing the manatee off, and that's yeah. how you know there's respect there. Absolutely. Uh, okay, up next, we've got Best Director, which uh, this filled my heart with joy. Uh, it went to George Miller for Mad Max Fury Road. And following his victory, George Miller proceeded to chug two Line and Kugel summer shandies in celebration. Now, now, Chris, do you think that he did this just because he enjoys the sweet, citrusy taste of a Line and Kugel, <laughs> even in the winter? Or do you think he listens to our show? I um, Maybe he listens to our show and he lost a bet. <laughs> That's where my money Yeah, is. he was betting that he wouldn't win. Uh-huh. Um, to get that joke, folks, go back to episode 13. But hopefully you already know what it is. You're a listener like George Miller. And finally, that brings us to the big award, the Best Picture Award. We had eight nominees this year. But according to New Academy rules, a Best Picture Oscar was actually not awarded for the very first time in history. Instead, Paul Haggis was forced to return his Oscar that he won 10 years ago for his tactless morality play, Crash. You know, Chris, justice truly was served, and Paul Haggis <laughs> didn't leave the evening empty-handed, because even though Crash was rightly had to return its his Oscar for that, mm-hmm. um, he was given an Oscar in honor of his magnum opus, Walker, Texas Ranger, This, despite it being neither nominated or even a movie. But they decided to give yeah, an but, Oscar but for but it transcends. Walker. I mean, it's, it is cinema itself. It doesn't just transcend genre, it transcends art form. Uh-huh. And so, for the first time in history, we can say, hashtag... Oscars so Walker. <laughs> First and probably last. Which is a shame, really. Although this might actually lead to a, a whole spin-off Walker Texas Ranger universe, if we're lucky. It, that, and then also maybe there will be a new Oscar category dedicated to previous Chuck Norris categories. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. And, you know, if, if that happens, we will uh, tell you about it probably next year in the... Uh, 2016 2017 pre-oscar post show well chris i'm really really curious to see just how many of these we got right i'm betting it's actually going to be uh we're going to get them all right yeah and the haggis thing definitely yeah there's no way none of this happened well ladies and gentlemen we go from hollywood patting its own back to a pre-modern morality play with the witch stick around we'll discuss that next black phillips sif you are wicked does he really speak to thee this wilderness will not consume us. Who's there? You've cursed this family. This is witchcraft. She plays a curse on me. 
Why have you turned against me? I saw it. Your reign of evil. It's not safe. Not with them. Think how my sense. In 2015, writer-director Robert Eggers charmed Sundance audiences with his debut feature, The Witch. Over a year later, this New England folktale has finally been unleashed on the masses. But only after a vigilant marketing campaign encouraging moviegoers that this story, of a Puritan family exiled from their plantation community and forced to homestead in the wilderness alone, was sure to be one of the most terrifying cinematic experiences in recent memory. This may have placed butts in seats on opening weekend, but it's also led to an extraordinarily polarized Rotten Tomatoes score. The Witch is currently certified fresh with a whopping 89% approval from critics. Audiences, on the other hand, have been toiled and troubled, offering a middling aggregate score of just 53%. So Hunter, I'm curious, where does The Witch land for you? Were you possessed by this Puritan parable? Or was this just an overhyped, hokey, homesteading horror picture? And furthermore, wouldst thou like to live deliciously? Chris, I am frankly shocked and offended that you would even ask me that question. I am wearing a Hawaiian shirt in the middle of winter. If that's not living deliciously, I frankly don't know what is. <laughs> this is true, folks. I wish I wish you were here to see this. Um, here's my kind of my what I would put on the poster or the previews. If you were to see this, see the previews for this film and they were to have a quote from me, it would be this is that this is the second best film to feature an evil rabbit since Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And that's high praise indeed. Because Wait, second best since or second best including? Second be- oh, yes. Ex- <clears throat> yes, excuse me. The second best evil rabbit picture since Monty Python and the Holy Grail. That might upset some Watership Down fans, but mm-hmm. I would say that this is second only to Monty Python in that regard. But in answer to your real question, I would say that the witch possessed just about everything I look for in a movie. It's hard to find fault in this. Now, it's not perfect. No movie is. But this is just an all-around, well-told morality tale slash horror film. Mm -hmm. Well-acted, well-written, well-directed, well-shot. And then also, it's it's a horror movie that makes you think while at the same time it's scaring you. And what I also am fascinated by it is that on the one hand, you could say it's a very unhappy, dark ending. But then on the other hand, in the kind of the vein of a New England morality tale, mm-hmm. it's got a, you might say, a religiously vindicating ending. Mm-hmm. So even though it's an unhappy ending, it's vindicating from a moral religious standpoint, which is unusual and difficult to do. Um, I, I agree, but I think I come from a different a different viewpoint than you do. I mean, I, I see this movie like on the whole as uh, sort of a a parable about coming into womanhood. I mean, this this main daughter character, Thomason. Um, I don't know. I I was really enthralled with the the arc of that character. Now, do you think that that was deliberate? Because I'm not saying it wasn't there, but do you think that that was deliberate, or do you think that that's just inherent in the story which he was trying to tell? Because I would argue that Robert Eggers was legitimately trying to make something that you would read from the 1600s almost like a john winthrop account um i i mean i think that's if i guess we can get into a little bit of spoilers right off the bat and say that there's there's a title card at the end of this that says like a lot of this dialogue was taken from diaries and from um trial transcripts and you know direct i mean basically lifting this dialogue from firsthand accounts from from the time and so I, I don't know. I, I feel like he reading like a couple of little like interviews and things with him. It seems like um, he really wanted it to be a little open ended, a little. So I think to prescribe that um, he's going for exactly one thing or another might be against, you know, even his his intentions. But um, 
I mean, that's, that's kind of how I read it. I think, and I think he gives you enough here to, you can, you know, sort of latch on to one character or another each time you watch and sort of experience through their, um, their suffering, their misery. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Chris, let's, uh, let's break this down a little bit, um, with the things that we liked about it. I think that, uh, one thing that we're hearing a lot from, people who did enjoy this movie was the language, the vernacular. This is, it, it made it feel that much more authentic and lived in. I would say that last episode we talked about True Grit, directed by the Coen brothers, and how they really embodied the 1800s Oklahoma language. This does the exact same thing with the 17th century mm-hmm. uh, New England kind of speak. So that was, pro- if I if I were to say one thing that I just really, really bit into and really enjoyed from this film, it's the way they were, they talked. <laughs> there There are a lot of like, great great lines throughout this movie and and some of it like initially it took a little bit of adjusting for me to like get into oh this is we're doing thou and doth and you know what i i don't even know the yeah there, know, the there were yeah exactly there were a few moments whenever it. you did kind of wish for a translation or subtitling or something but but it was i mean it, it really kind of puts you in i mean it it sort of feels like you are really in that that space and that and to that like I think a lot of times that can be something that can be distracting in a movie. Like when they, um, you know, get too obsessed with, Oh, well the house has to look exactly like a house from the 17th century or, um, those sorts of things. But I think it, it plays so naturally in the setting that we've been given here that it, it really goes hand in hand, not, not working against saying, Oh, look at, look at all that. We, I mean, something like the Revenant where they're like, Oh, look at, you know, we actually shot in, uh, we actually shot in natural light, which a lot of this movie is as well. And I think I would argue just as beautiful in a lot of ways. Well, and yeah, and there's a difference between you're watching the film and I'm not saying the Revenant does this, but there's a difference between you're watching the film and you're saying they're trying to tell you, Hey, look at what we accomplished versus this, wherever it's just so lived in and natural. Mm -hmm. Now to your point about the language and it not feeling arbitrary or forced, most of that has to fall in the hands of the actors. These were terrific performances. Really? And, and we're dealing with, you know, basically, basically the movie is two adults and four children and two very young children. Um, and they all did amazingly well with, with the lines they were given. And it's not like it's a very talky movie, but whenever they do, I mean, be it that they're, you know, praying to God or talking with each other, like it feels natural. It doesn't feel forced. It doesn't feel like Keanu Reeves in, um, is it much ado about nothing? Which, uh, yeah. Uh, where, where it's just like, you can tell Keanu Reeves is trying to spit out Shakespeare, but just can't, can't hack it. Absolutely. And then I would argue that the, the, the best performance in this film, the, the character that really anchored everything and made you believe everything was Ralph Innocent as the father. He's got that really deep smoky voice Mm -hmm. that almost sounds like it was meant to speak these lines. Like his, his voice has been waiting hundreds and hundreds of years to be able to say these lines because it just fit him like a glove. I think it fit all of them though. I mean, I, I was really, really taken by, I mean, particularly the children, honestly, like, and I think they're kind of put in your, you're put more in their shoes than you are the parents. A lot of the time, like you get, you get a couple intimate moments between just the parents alone, but I would say a majority of the time you're, you're particularly spending time with, uh, what's her name? Thomason and Caleb, her, her mm-hmm. brother They're They're about the same age and they've got twin, um, siblings who are a boy and a girl who are, I don't know, maybe five or six, something like that yeah. around there. And, and they're more sort of, um, 
we were trying to figure this out off mic. Uh, I think we landed on they're they're more sort of like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern in you know a, a Shakespearean characters that are kind of they're a little bit commenting on what's going on and they're you know almost set you at ease as an audience member a little bit. Um, you know they're uh, but but they're also like they're dealing with very difficult language and doing it brilliantly. No, absolutely, very very impressive from that perspective. And it's and your point about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern is that. This film set in 1630s, that's just, I'm not sure when exactly Shakespeare died, but I believe it was the 1620s. So this is the Shakespearean Mm -hmm. Elizabethan universe. Mm -hmm. And so these Mm -hmm. characters actually came from England, moved to America. These were the very first Puritans. Yeah. And so, uh, and so that, that putting yourself in that context at no point in time, do you feel like you're watching a movie? That's what I really like about this film is you don't feel like you're watching a movie. You feel like you are watching a family undergoing this very supernatural suffering Mm -hmm. in a 17th century setting. Let's let's get into that, that suffering. So, I mean, apart from the technical aspects, I think we're both on the same page in like the, the acting, the, the direction, the way it's shot, all of that very kind of perfect to build this world. What did you think about the way, um, the way the supernatural content is handled and the way that um, sort of, ties into the story. Well, I think you and I are going to disagree about this because I don't think it was ambiguous. I think it firmly stated at the beginning that, no, there's a witch in these woods, and then it just kept it, it kept it away from you. Mm-hmm. The, the witch wasn't there throughout the film. She's very... It, the witch, which is, spoiler alert, they're, they're not ever present insofar as you actually see them on screen, but they're, they're just knowing they're there. Mm-hmm. And so I would actually argue that there is an ambiguity, that it is... For all intents and purposes, stated that there's something going on in these here woods. Okay, so I'm I'm not I completely agree with you and completely disagree with you. I completely completely agree with you in that, like I think you can read that there's really not much ambiguity. Although it's not, it also doesn't like get on a soapbox or get on a like this is exactly what's you know it does it doesn't just point everything out to you. But my reading was very different. I I actually read it from. Um, almost a standpoint of uh, like if, if, if I was to like be taking the script in to, to pitch it um, at, at a meeting, I would say it's sort of Sarah Val's the uh, wordy shipmates, which is a, a book that she wrote several years ago about Puritans coming, mm-hmm. coming to America uh, meets uh, Errol Morris's the thin blue line. And just in the way that it to me always felt like this is, you know, it, the structure of the horror movie, the, you know, for instance, I, I mean, this is in the, in the trailer, the baby disappearing, um, basically instantly with, uh, and that, that being, uh, told through the eyes of, oh, well, a witch stole the baby and then, um, ground the baby up and covered like they do. Her, yeah. Yeah. As, as they do, um, you use the baby for, for magic, uh, essentially or dark arts. Um, that seems almost like a, uh, excuse might be the wrong word, but a a way that they are actually uh, dealing with living in this horrible situation. Like it's, and, and so all of these things that are these supernatural things that are happening felt more to me like um, explanations of other things. I mean, and, and there's a few, a few things that hint to this throughout the movie. There's one, uh, the, the line that I mentioned earlier about being cursed by, I think cursed by Indian magic or, or something to that effect. Um, they're talking about a guy, um, from the plantation the like the winter before. Um, and 
there's also, I, I think maybe the key line or the key moment in the entire film for me is the father and the son, Caleb come out of the woods. They've been, um, looking for a rabbit, uh, or something that has been, they, they've set a trap and they're looking to see if anything has been caught in the trap because, um, their crop isn't coming out, you know, it's coming up rotten. Um, they're, at a point where they need food to survive, probably the, the, the most winter, the most unsuccessful farmer since the good dinosaur. Because <laughs> I'm actually thinking the good dinosaur while watching this a little bit, but that's pardon my digression. Um, but so there, you know, it's a, it's at a point where he's now trying to trap whatever he can because obviously the crops are not going to not going to do it for the family for for the winter that is coming. And um, there's that moment where the son Caleb lies to the mother about why they were in the woods, what they were doing in the woods, all of that. And that sort of feels like to me, the framing point of everything else that happens that, that little white lie to explain to, to build a story around um, what happened and why they, why they were there and all that, that feels like everything else you could, you could point to another lie that leads to why did the baby disappear? Oh, it was a witch. That's, that's the, um, why, why, uh, what happened to, um, these, is it lambs that are, I'm trying to, um, there's, there, there's some animals that, that, that are found, are found dead, um, later on in the movie. What happened there? Oh, well, it, it's a possessed, you know, uh, it, it's possession. It's, it's dark magic. It's witches. It's all of these things. It's, it's just pure evil. Um, and, and I think the, you know, that little code at the end saying that this is all taken from direct accounts sort of supports that. Um, I mean, living in a world where clearly we don't have witches and this is, you know, this stuff was written in, you know, a few hundred years earlier. Like it, it feels like the logical, like they couldn't explain it. So that was their explanation. And, and I would say that's a fair read. I would say at least within the terms of this movie, I would say that these events did literally happen, but you can read them as an analogy. Mm-hmm. For for psychological failures. See, I I don't even know if analogy. I think a a like this is this is what people have convinced themselves is the reality. Um, when in fact it's it's something different that they're not willing to accept, or they don't they just don't have an explanation, and so this is the explanation they they come up with. I would like to just point out that this is a recurring theme on this show because you are called the Babadook. Wherever you yeah. take the standpoint, spoiler on the Babadook, that it was uh, in her head, and then I said, "Well, I, I believe that it is a it's real, but it's an analogy for something else." So the the, the problem with the pro- yeah exactly. So the thing about that is, I guess both of our answers are true and both of them can be false. There's not really a, a dividing mm-hmm. line. So mm-hmm. speaking of the Babadook, even though this film was extremely well-crafted, well-made, I don't think that it's going to keep me up at night quite like the Babadook did. Have you lost any sleep since watching The Witch? Um, it's. I think it's actually one that's gotten a little scarier as the farther away I've gotten from it. Just from a like, the thing that's terrifying about it is not, I mean, there, there are zero jump scares. There's not anything like, I think the scariest thing in the Babadook is, the um, shot of the Babadook coming like directly at the screen, which felt almost like stop motiony, like so it felt. Um, I think it was stop motion, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it, I, I think you're right, but but it you know it just felt so surreal and fake, and like it was the it, you know it was just across the room, and now it's right in front of me. Um, there was nothing like that here, which I think would have cheapened what what Eggers is going for. Um, but just thinking about. Uh, you know, trying to live in that time. And, and, you know, it's with the context of everything that we now know as 21st century, you know, human beings with, um, 
you know, understanding everything from, from sickness to, uh, just science in general, a little better than, than these folks. Um, it's hard to put, you know, to exactly put yourself in their shoes, but just how hopeless you would feel, um, being a Puritan at that time living in new England with, you know, you're, you're fighting against the elements. Well, daily. actually I would argue with that. Cause that was another thing that I admired about the movie is coming up from a modern perspective. I was looking at, man, oh, this is, this is like hell on earth. How, mm-hmm. how could, how could someone, it seems so hopeless, but th- it, since it was their reality, it was all they ever knew was struggle yeah, yeah. against nature. Absolutely. I, I admired how the film, again, it made you feel like you were in that time. So they, it didn't seem hopeless per se. It seemed hopeless to me, but not to them. Um, it, I don't know. I, I think it did. It did feel a little hopeless to them. I mean, when, particularly when the parents are talking about back in England, when, you know, things weren't this terrible and, um, or I, I think maybe even the, the father is talking to the kids or maybe the kids are talking to each other. I think it's, I think it's Caleb and Thomason are talking to each other about, um, sunlight coming through a window like these these distant memories of england and just how um you know it did it was a little uh more civilized mm-hmm. uh, back then, then i think what it would be and then is just again going to the uh the performance of uh mr innocent mm-hmm. is his he made you believe that they would still find a way mm-hmm. and he believed it and he was going to transfer that belief onto them and so i i mentioned at the outset that i viewed this in many ways as despite it having an unhappy ending per se, it's spiritually validating insofar. And I'll make this case and see what you think is it's about basically a man who admits to the sin of pride, which is the greatest sin of all. And so, and he goes out into the woods and then is punished for his pride and then falls susceptible to these demonic witches. He, he places his family in a dangerous situation solely to secure his own pride and his ability to take care of them. And then is ultimately punished for it. That is a very puritanical morality, but it's morality nevertheless. How do you do you embrace that view? Um, I mean, I see it. I understand it. I I think there's a few things like we don't fully understand what gets them kicked out of the plantation to begin with. So that's a big like sort of not exactly. But I do think that there was some implication that it was he did not agree with their reading of the bible their reading of the gospels yeah he was implied he he, yeah it was implied that basically he was more pious or saw himself as more pious than they were and that's where they kind of butted heads um so yeah i i i like i like that as a reading it's just it's not exactly how i how i viewed it but i i can see you know piecing those dots together and um getting at i mean i i guess the one thing is he doesn't to me it, it seems like he doesn't ever fully i guess he admits to the wife the, the the stealing of the cup eventually but it at that point it almost seems um especially the way the story plays out like it's too late well as as he argued at at throughout the film as basically they all argued is they're just damned and so when you start at a place of your your in you're damned as a human being and mm-hmm. you have to work to improve upon that, that even the forgiveness of minor sins, it was still the overarching sin of pride that he never really lost. Mm-hmm. And then, and so it's one of those things, it's not necessarily that he was punished for his pride as so much. He let his guard down because of his pride. If his pride was not obscuring his vision, he wouldn't have been so he wouldn't have allowed his daughter, for instance, to be bewitched per se spoiler <laughs> but but then that's the the whole like was she really bewitched until like i mean it, it because there's definitely a accusation that comes far before there's any bewitching on her part 
that we're aware yeah. that that we're aware of. I, I that, don't that, must have that to see this again. That, yeah. Well, and that's ever really like presented to us. Um, it really, I mean, it's sort of it, it's sort of like, uh, you know, this thing that it feeds into itself. I always, I I don't know why, but I always go back to Oedipus on this. Like, her being accused of being a witch is the only thing that kind of turns her into a witch, almost. Um, it, it has, it has that, that quality to it. Uh, the, you know, the Aruberos sort of thing feeding into itself. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think we fundamentally read it two different ways. I don't necessarily think there is a right way to read this. And that's, that's kind of what I really love about this. this yeah. Film. And then I'll add to that, what she just said about at what point in time did she quote become a witch is that at, at, at no point until the very last frame did I know what the ending was at no point did I predict the ending until the movie was already mm. over. And so I really like that is anybody could have been the bad guy, but it's also not a movie that builds to a ending. That's, you know, it's not, it's not, Oh, well he was Kaiser Cersei. It's not that sort of ending. It's not building to a big reveal. Yeah. It's, it's more like it, it, that totally informs the rest of like everything that came before it. And um, in a, in a very like unsettling sort of way, but um, it, it's also not not the like narrative conclusion that you would, you know, be looking for in a in a just standard storytelling arc. Right. And OK, so you and I can talk about this ad infinitum. Let's talk about perhaps the most compelling and convincing performance in this film. That, of course, being Black Phillip played by <laughs> a goat. <laughs> Were you impressed by Black Phillip's performance? I was extremely impressed by Black Phillip. I mean, it's uh, I mean, I, I wonder, is a goat more or less difficult to deal with than kittens? Having not ever owned a goat, I mean, I, my my inclination is to say no. A kitten is always the most difficult thing to deal with, just from experience. But but I mean, we've got we've got four children and a goat. A goat that's like got to give a performance of a lifetime, and a rabbit that's got to. Well, give actually, a you know, I would actually. Stunning. I said I said Black Philip the goat, but actually the the possessed rabbit that that rabbit with the scary uh-huh. frightening but that, eyes. That rabbit's a real like cool shove. Uh, experiment there because like i mean with with a different sort of score behind it it might be just fine um but that that like sort of choral like uh, like really okay okay actually yeah let's talk about the score a little bit is the score the cinematography the camera placement this movie reminded me a lot of there will be blood did you get that at any Hmm. point in time i i didn't i mean there's the sparseness in the score and the the sort of way that it's 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 not used in necessarily a traditional way i could i could see that uh, that comparison, the, um, I mean, the, the cinematography, I absolutely loved. It felt very still and very, um, you know, the camera's always very intentionally placed. I don't know if you cut this, but it's a one six, six to one aspect ratio. So it's actually slightly skinnier than like your typical widescreen, um, which kind of gave it just a nice, like being, being a period piece gave it a little more, like it actually feels a little arcane. Like it's still, it's still widescreen. It's not that like letterbox four by three, but we're, it, it feels just a little bit closed off. Yeah. Cloistered. Um, yeah. Which, which I think works very well. I mean, that's, a, that's a minor thing that I don't think a typical audience is going to see, but you still kind of feel it. Like it's not the, the landscapes aren't quite as broad and wide. Um, I don't know. There, there will be blood. I, I can see it. I, I don't, I don't fully embrace your, your comparison though. Well, I mean, they're two different movies by two different directors, but again, just that the score felt like there will be blood. 
at the score and then the the period setting. Yeah, maybe. I mean, the score the score definitely felt like something. I don't know if it's Johnny Greenwood's score, but I can see I can see comparisons between the two. I could see how you could kind of read because they both have that like sparse but extremely effective feel. Well, Chris, this movie is about an hour and a half long, and we have almost talked that. I'm I'm <laughs> I'm absolutely convinced. So, unless you have anything else, I think it's time f- to discuss. Whether or not your brew pick is bewitching, and if it indeed is perhaps produced in a cauldron. I I could have gone that way, but instead, I went with a pious potable, which means this is a beer that is made by monks in Belgium. Um, it's Chimay Grand Reserve. Uh, this is a Belgian strong dark ale, and it's made in the Scormont Abbey in Belgium. Um, it's a it's a really – have you ever had a Chimay or any any sort of Trappist beer? If I have, I don't recall. Okay. So Trappist beer is there's there's only a few select um, breweries that are Trappist breweries, and they're all made by monks um, within within the walls of, of an abbey. Um, Chimay happens to be one of them, probably one of the more uh, popular, recognizable ones. Um, but this, this tastes like a Belgian Trappist. It's um, dark, rich, fruity, earthy, um, a real like... It's it's a real if if you're only used to drinking your Leinen Kugels, it's going to taste like a totally different sort of beer experience. Like that it's was not- directed at you, George Miller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was definitely not pointing at Hunter here. Um, it's it's uh, you know not what you expect of you know like a an American lager or something like that. It's it's got a fruity earthiness that's uh, really quite delicious, and it's a uh, you know it's a nine percent. You know how I like my my high point beer so you might feel a little bewitched by uh by the end if you down a couple of these watching the witch well fantastic well chris and i both love the film but we came at it from very different perspectives so we want to hear yours the witch is currently haunting a theater near you so if you've seen it tell us your thoughts at hello at war starts at midnight.com or if email isn't your thing you can either haunt our dreams or ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362 that's 484-4cinema Stick around, my pretties, because we'll be back after the break to discuss our special features topic, Moments That Horrify. You're the worst kind of liar when it never comes clean. You get caught on purpose just to be mean. I need you, I need you, I need you to leave. You asked me if I was in love Asking someone their favorite movie gives you a pretty good idea of their personality. Far more interesting is the question, what movie moments most horrified you? The answer to that question gives you a peek into their psyche. We all have them. Movie moments that may last only a matter of seconds, 
but nevertheless have left a psychological scar so deep that it has stayed with us for years, perhaps even since childhood. Horrifying moments need not come from horror movies. I dare say Chris and I are about to discover that our most traumatizing cinematic memories originate from unexpected and varying genres. What are these moments, Midnight Warriors? And what do they say about your, hopefully, honest hosts? Chris, let's begin at the beginning. You always remember your first time. So what is your first, not necessarily your worst, movie moment that horrified you? I mean, if we're going like actual first, it would probably be something that I think I've mentioned on, I've definitely mentioned on the show before, and that would be uh, The Fortune Teller in Big. Absolutely terrified me as a kid, like to the point that uh, I didn't like, I'm pretty sure I only saw the first, what is that? Like the first five, 10 minutes of that movie? Something like that, yeah. That, that's that's all I had seen as a child. And just thinking about... Uh, about the that that fortune teller would you know just send shivers up my spine when I was little. Well, mine are going to have a running theme. Uh, whenever Adam Chitwood of Collider dot com was supposed to be, we had a, we kind of talked about this a little bit mm-hmm. on uh, on email, and he mentioned in the Saint, which I don't know if you've seen that. I have not. In the Saint, at one point in time, there's a little girl who falls off you know several flights of stairs and mm-hmm. then lands on the ground. So it sounds like he and I are on a similar plane because most of my horrifying moments are people falling. Mm. And so the very Hmm. first one that I think the first one would be in Cinderella whenever the cat Satan or Mm -hmm. Lucifer, excuse me, the cat's name is Lucifer. Whenever the dog just out of nowhere chases the cat up through the top of the tower and then the cat plunges to its death. And Disney morality, I will say this, Disney will always do away with their villains, vanquish their villains in the most horrifying of ways Mm -hmm. in in that particular instance it seemed like the cat didn't deserve to die i mean because really the cat just tried to eat mice that's what that's what cats do you know what i mean so the cat wasn't sadistic it was just a cat that cat was possessed by satan well at the very least an evil goat or an evil rabbit the cat was Uh, possessed by an evil rabbit the thing about that scene that's most horrifying to me though is the you know the, the cat falls and dies but then that slow stream of blood that comes out from under it is just it's it's unsettling even as an oh adult. so oh that actually see I I just I think I've seen the edited version so I've only ever seen the the cat fly off the I've I haven't seen that fly, what you just flies described off, hits the ground and blood like why would you shoot that I mean I don't I, I mean may I can't imagine that we were that much more delicate as children than children in the 30s and 40s. Mm -hmm. Maybe we were. I mean, I understand that they are harder than we were. But at the same time, there's no reason to include that unless you're trying to mess with people's heads. Because what you described, I don't even remember that part. Well, the running theme of people falling, also in Rescuers Down Under, when the main villain goes off the Mm -hmm. waterfall and plunges Mm -hmm. to his doom, that was a moment that I, anytime it was about to happen watching that movie, I just... I, I, uh-huh. I think a few times I had to leave the room. And you've you've also mentioned uh, now that now that we're talking about all the, this falling in Disney movies, you also mentioned in uh, the Great Mouse Detective at the end with Radigan. Yeah, I mean it, it's a, it's a it's a falling theme in in Disney movies and in my cinematic experience, just being really <laughs> disturbed by people falling. And then finally, to finish the falling board is in Batman whenever mm-hmm. Batman kills the Joker by tying his foot to the gargoyle statue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Joker plunged to his doom. That messed with me. Mm-hmm. So in Back to the Future, were you terrified that Doc was going to fall? I actually didn't see that until I was a teenager. What? At middle school, I what? take that back. Middle school. So I think oh. I was a little. I had a little bit of scar tissue from all of those Disney movies you as know, a kid. Now I don't even regret not having you on that episode. Yeah, I, I, what 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 would I have been able to contribute? So my uh my picks there a lot of them come from childhood. I mean big bigs I mean one of my first memories of 
television movies, anything like, um, I, I couldn't have been more than like two and a half or three at that point. Um, another movie that, and this is a movie that I was sort of obsessed with. I loved it as a child, watched it constantly, but really also frightened me quite a bit, uh, was Bambi. Um, Bambi, particularly the, the, you know, the scene where, yeah, I was about to say, this is probably something that you share with 98% of Western civilization. Absolutely. Except for hardcore deer hunters. They probably thought that was badass. Um, but yeah, I mean, just, but the way, the way that she dies, because the, uh, the, I assumed, I, I always assumed as a kid that it was his father. I don't know if, if that's the intent, but the, the big buck, um, just the way that he delivers the, you know, Bambi's like, where's my mother? And, um, he says something to the effect of, uh, your, no, your mother will no longer join you or will no like, it's just so like creepy and haunting and, and it's, you know, it, the death happens off screen, but that almost makes it worse because there's this cacophony of music and Bambi's rushing and, and at the point where finally everything settles down you're like okay we'll we'll you know figure out what's going on then the creepy buck comes in and just and that's it now it's like okay well that's the end of that act let's go on to springtime what do you want to bet that disney actually shot originally filmed the knitting or animated and any of her getting shot and then like them skinning it and, and put taking her to a sausage no. factory or something like no. that i mean because there's no there there is no like the humans are always off screen in that, which actually makes them that much more terrifying. Um, I mean, by the, by the end of this movie, it gets into a bit of just kind of hippiness of the way that, like, the way that the the hunters are portrayed is ridiculous now as an adult, as someone who, like, as part of my job, I cut a lot of commercials that are for you know outdoor hunting sort of situations, and the the very end, like, um, you've got all these are towards the end. You've got all these animals that are running for their life from um, a hunter, but it's like quail and rabbit and deer. And, and it's like, no one, no one goes hunting like a, you need a different gun for um, or, right. or a different, different sort of ammo for each of those things. And, um, no one goes hunting for all those things at once. Just like, I'm going to kill all the critters I can find. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's carrying all the guns. It kind of reminds me not to get political, but during the whole, uh, Cecil, the lion thing, mm-hmm. Maddox, I don't know if you ever view Maddox side, but he, I did. have, he, you know, he pronounces it Maddox, which, excuse uh, me, Maddox, yes. which I think is absolute bullshit. Well, in any event, he's kind of a philosopher king in my universe. And so he, I remember him making a meme of Cecil the lion and he's wrote not a vegetarian above Cecil's. And so that's kind of the Bambi thing is you have animals that would probably be killing each other otherwise, but now they're all, you know, not in this universe. They all live, you know, they, I mean, they all live very happy. Every time a prince comes along, they all get together and say hi. But uh, Hunter, do you have anything that's not falling related? Um, actually I do. Um, and this was something that I saw in middle school as you, as you know, I I'm really into over-the-top action films. Mm-hmm. And so Under Siege with Steven Seagal. Have you ever seen Under I have Siege? Not. Okay, the main bad guy in this picture is played by Tommy Lee Jones. And you mentioned kind of hippy-dippy. Tommy Lee Jones plays a radical left wiener who I think he even— A, a would, left wiener? Yes, a left wiener. A left wiener. And I think I even think he wears tie dye and a bandana. And so he he takes a boat hostage, something like that. I can't even remember. But he plays a radical left wiener. And at the end, he and Steven Seagal are having a knife fight. Mm-hmm. And at one point in time, you can find it on YouTube. Steven Seagal, to finish the fight, stabs him with a knife in the top of his head, not side or just through the top of his head. So he's like a unicorn mm-hmm. and then shoves him into a computer. 
He just throws his body into a computer. <laughs> so it, it's one of those things that's an over-the-top death scene that you're supposed to be really excited about. Mm-hmm. But whenever I saw that, I like Tommy Lee Jones. I don't really like Steven Seagal, so there's that. But then just, I, it really bugged me. And it still does, obviously. You know, I've I've never seen Under Siege. I, I know there's a sequel Under Siege too. Does he come back as like, that actually gave him unicorn robot computer superpowers? You know, it was probably a cutscene. <laughs> Oh, okay. Another falling with Tommy Lee Jones in Batman Forever. That bothered me too. Whenever uh-huh. Batman throws the coins, because he's just he's got this big mission and he happens to carry around a bunch of coins. I guess to park the Batmobile in downtown Gotham or no, something. No, no, he he is a you know he's the world's greatest detective and he prepared. He knew that he that Two Face or Harvey Dent always relied on that uh, on on that coin. So he had all of these coins minted because he's a billionaire and he can do that. And he was prepared for the moment. He was, he was prepared to elaborately murder yes. uh, Two-Face. Did that bother you? Or did no, it? Okay. Well, it that, bo- okay, that bothered me. I mean, it's, I, if you wanted to get in the morality of Batman, like maybe a little bit in like, he, he straight up, like, could have done it another way where he takes him off to jail, but no, he just, he does murder him. Yeah. But, again, it's just my affection for Tommy Lee Jones, Robin beating the shit out of him and then him plunging to his doom. That mm-hmm. bothered me. Okay. I've got one that is not from my childhood. Um, and, and that is a, this is a movie that, uh, I, I'd always been curious about, never really wanted to see, but when I got rid of discs on Netflix, I went through the entire thing and said, what can I not like get at the library or somewhere else where like, what is this really the only time that I'm ever going to see this movie? And the last thing that I got on a disc from, from Netflix was Sallow, um, the 120 days of Sodom. Uh, which is a uh, Pasolini film about um, fascism in Italy, among many, many, many other things. Um, and it's a uh, it's a movie that I has never fully left my psyche, um, and and with that comes a lot of baggage because it's it's I everything that I heard about. Are you are you aware of Sal? Just what you've told me. Okay, it's it's a just sort of disgusting little movie about basically people being held captive and, and tortured by these uh, rich libertines who, um, you know, believe in just no boundaries of any kind. And it's sort of structured like Dante's Inferno. There's the circle of X and the towards about the middle of the film, there's the circle of and it's, I mean, there's just so many things that happen there that, I will never be able to unsee. And it, and it's captured in a way that's not um, necessarily exploitative. It's not, it's not like some, you know, just gross. Oh, you know, a couple, a couple teenage kids laughing like, Oh, look, people are playing with poop. Mm-hmm. Like it's artfully framed and, and staged to the point that um, it becomes even more difficult to digest. No pun intended um, with what, what exactly he's getting at here. And, um, so it's, I mean, even like talking about it right now, I'm kind of beginning to sweat and then um, envisioning the, the series of events. I mean, uh, I guess spoilers for Sallow, if, if you haven't seen it, don't. Um, but it, there's a, there's a big buffet of, well, so then you would say it's not a, a worthwhile film. I mean, I, I think it's a film that you can, you know, there's a lot of discussion to be had and there's a lot to analyze, but it's just, I don't know if you want to subject yourself to that. Like it is a Pandora's box that you cannot close. I think you know the answer to that. I think you absolutely know the answer to that. <laughs> and the answer I is- like to live deliciously. And <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, um, man. Well, well, speaking of circles of shit, 
and subjecting yourself to insane things. Have you ever seen Cannibal Holocaust? I have not. Okay, no. Cannibal Holocaust, you might just say the whole movie's a, a horrifying movie moment. But speaking of crazy left wieners, it's about these crazy left wieners who go to South America and then are brutally murdered by uh, cannibals. Mm-hmm. But what bothered me more about than that is they legitimately killed animals in this movie. Mm-hmm. You you actually saw... That's, I mean, that's the like one thing that I know about it. Is yeah. There's... You saw how they killed this turtle. You saw how they killed... I mean, it, it's pretty... That, that stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Cannibal Holocaust. That's another one that it's more an endurance test than a movie. Okay. I'm going to pull us back to a little little safer shores here. I've got one more, and that's, uh, that's Hook, the uh, Steven Spielberg, much maligned Steven Spielberg movie from the early 90s. Um, which I love. I don't care what, what you or anyone says. Rod to hell, to says. hell with the rest of you. Yeah. Um, but there's there's a scene in Hook where uh, he is, Dustin Hoffman plays uh, plays Captain Hook. Bob Hoskins plays Shmee. And there's a scene that, as a kid, like when I was very young, when I first saw it, I didn't understand. Um, but as I got a little bit older, you know, like late elementary school, perhaps, um, there's a scene that really, really like, it was like, I can remember the first time that I understood what was going on. Um, and, and it's bothered me ever since it's, uh, particularly for, you know, being a children's movie, but Captain Hook is attempting to commit suicide, or at least at the very least, uh, pretending to attempt to commit suicide for attention from Shmi. And just like the quietness and the stillness of that scene, really, really disturbed me as a child. See, because as I recall, wasn't that played for comedy? Or am I... Um, I mean, there's there's some jokes in the dialogue, yeah, but it's like not it it's not easy. Like when you're like as like I was saying, when I was younger, didn't bother me at all. Like I it it, it is sort of played for comedy in in the way that they're delivering the lines, and so it was kind of realizing what the context was when when I was a little bit older was the place where it was like, oh man, I I read this completely differently, and I feel very uncomfortable. All right. Well, speaking of uncomfortable, uh, you and I. Uh decided on this special features topic, the witch side unseen. Was there any horrifying moment in the witch that you think that will stick with you? Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't really want to give it away, but I'll say black Phillips involved. Okay. So, okay. Well then there you go, folks. Whenever you see it, wait for the black Phillips moment. I imagine Chris and I have more buried deep in our subconscious, Mm -hmm. but neither one of us are prepared to get on the proverbial couch and unearth these movie moments. So now we're going to pass it on to you. What are the moments that horrify you? Let us know at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Stick around for our really rad recommendations. Coming up next. Sun and the moon
All right, Hunter, we're on the final stretch. We've got recommendations left. Uh, what do you have for us? Is it something that's going to possess us? Um, actually, it may. It's uh, it, Here's the thing is certain cultures are just better at horror. I would say that Americans are, by and large, pretty good at horror, but we're not the best. I would say that the best at horror are the Japanese, because even if they're not trying to be scary, they can make something unsettling. Creepy. Creepy is a really good... Uh, well, especially children. Imagine the witch with Japanese children, and <laughs> you're not sleeping for weeks on end. But one of the the true masterpieces of Japanese horror is Quaden, which I believe is translates to Ghost Story. It's on Criterion Collection. It's, it looks beautifully. It's basically an anthology, a two-and-a-half-hour anthology of Japanese ghost stories, some of them based in folklore. And there's one in particular about a man who witnesses winter personified as a woman putting his his camping partner to death and then that that's just one aspect of the story i believe it's the middle of the anthology but all of them are terrific that one especially has stuck with me so i would definitely recommend that quaden i'm not sure if it's on hulu plus but it is definitely a criterion release see now you're pulling out criterions that i haven't even heard of now I'm I'm really well. There's also Ani Baba, which is another freaky mm-hmm. 1960s Japanese horror film. So double feature it. Okay, okay. Ani Baba and Quaden. Your your entire weekend has been has been set now. Um, okay, so mine. I uh, I'm going a completely different. I'm not going to like generally I try to tie something in. I'm not going to tr- try to tie anything in right now. Um, I'm just going to recommend that everyone, you included Hunter, because I don't think you have yet, uh, sees Bridge of Spies. Um, Bridge of Spies is a delightful movie, and I do not understand why. Now, when you say delightful, because I have seen it, when you say delightful, like the movie's delightful or the experience of watching it is the delightful? Experience of, the experience of watching it is delightful. I mean, it's not it, it's it's not a knee slapper, but it's, um, I think, I don't think Spielberg has been this good in at least, I don't know, 10, maybe even 15 years. And I don't remember the last time I saw Tom Hanks this good. Um, it's, it's a very well-constructed, uh, little film. It's not, uh, you know, Spielberg falls a lot into the getting a little sappy, getting a little emotional. And I think he keeps a, a bit of distance here without it feeling cold. Um, the, the interaction between, uh, Hanks's character and, um, I forget the, uh, Abel, the, the, the uh, I forget the actor's name, the guy that Mark plays Rylance. M- Mark Rylance. Yeah. Um, who it, lost his Oscar to Tom Hardy, who lost his Oscar <laughs> to Tom Hardy. Exactly. Um, it, it's a really, it's a really nice, quiet, um, intimate little relationship that, um, doesn't feel like Spielberg in the past has, has done things somewhat similar where it just feels too on the nose too too bluntly telling you what's going on between, uh, characters in a situation like this and it, and it's allowed to breathe and it's, it's beautifully done a great script also by the Coen brothers, which I think it, it's got Coen brother style humor in it, but they also, I think they came in, the script had already been written and they sort of, uh, touched it up. Um, it still feels like something Spielberg. It doesn't feel like they hijacked anything. Um, so yeah, that's, that's Bridge of Spies. Everyone go see Bridge of Spies because I, or rent Bridge of Spies because I assume you probably haven't. Yeah. The, the best way to describe Bridge of Spies is it's a grown up movie. It's Steven Spielberg Certainly. and Tom Hanks, you know, two adults making an adult movie and you don't really see that often enough. Yeah. Well, that's a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Please check us out online at warstartsatmidnight.com for show notes, weekly movie recommendations, and more. You can say hi to Hunter on Facebook or me on Twitter at WSAMPod. And if you've made it this far into the credits, let's face it, you should probably subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, why don't you rate us or leave us a nice little review? It'll help us reach new listeners and it'll make you feel awesome. 
On the contrary, if you are the type who enjoys trolling, and you've just been hate-listening through these entire credits, well, tell us everything we got wrong at hello or starts at midnight.com. Or if you're a chronic narcissist, you can leave us a voicemail and we might just play it. Just ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. Shout out to Ruben's Accomplice for the music on this week's show. Find more at rubensaccomplice.com. Join us in another fortnight as we introduce a new concept in which we pit two essential films against each other and try to determine which is more essentialier. Our first combatants, Raging Bull versus Rocky. That should be exciting, Chris. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. Thanks for listening, folks. Fare thee well on your journey, Warriors of Midnight. And Bob Hoff's, Hoskin, Hop, Hop, Hopskins, Hoskins, Hoskins. It's just yeah, I thought Hoskins. there was a P or a, okay. Really, the only other one that I had, which I've talked about before, but it's it's funny games like that. Yeah, that closing scene of funny games in the theater. Was it Tim Roth, or was Tim Roth the husband? Tim Roth is the husband. Okay. It's uh, uh, Michael Pitt, and I I always forget the other guy's name but it's just a freeze frame on them with that music just blaring and they're looking like directly into the lens. Mm-hmm. And so it's just this, like the, the music is too loud. So it's, um, you know, unsettling just in like, you kind of want to cover your ears, but then like making this eye contact in a freeze frame is, I can't remember. It, it's the perfect kind of cacophony of Any everything. Moving when, and I can't even remember the name. I think it was probably really, really bad, but there was this Gary Busey straight to video movie. Anytime, whenever a domestic, nice domestic scene is disturbed, I, that really bothers me. It's not the one with Ice T, is it? No, it's uh, it's got Roy Schneider in it actually. But all I recall from it is uh, Gary Busey and his uh, girlfriend just show up at this family's picnic and then just start to beat the shit out of them and just do horrible things. And then when they find them later, their hands have been cut off and they're all just lying face flat. I don't even know if that's what happened, but that's what my memory is. Was this a documentary? Yeah, exactly. No, that's Randy Quaid. (laughs) (laughs) Gary Busey, not Randy Quaid.